Welcome to the year-end edition of A Life in Biography. I'm going to call this one Choosing My Subjects, A Fireside Chat. Now, this is just between you and me, since there is no fireplace, at least no fire, you're going to have to use your imagination and I'll use mine. Think of us just sitting next to one another, having a conversation about biography. In previous podcasts, I've talked a bit, of course, about my own biographies, my choices in biography. I'm going to narrow it down a little bit for this one, choosing my subjects starting in the year 2000. By late 1979, I had begun work on a biography, but I'm not going to go back that far. Some of my earlier podcasts deal with that earlier period. But in 2000, I had a sabbatical and I was working on a book about biography, but I took some time off um, since I needed some supplemental income to do an encyclopedia of American literature the 20th century, it was going to be three volumes, I was going to write the 20th century volume. Four facts on file. As I was doing that, I, I wrote an entry on the poet Amy Lowell, who I had not thought of uh, as a subject for a biography, but I read a number of other encyclopedias to compare with what I wanted to write about her. And in two of those encyclopedias, entries written, both entries written by women, said it was time for a new biography of Amy Lowell. And that intrigued me. I had read some Lowell. Um, and the more I read about her, I realized that there was a new way to do an Amy Lowell biography, concentrating on what I wanted to do, which was her best poems, and on her life, particularly um, the last 10 years of her life, uh, which was a real triumph, uh, both personally and professionally. Most of her poetry was written in the last 10 years of her life. She wrote poetry before that, but her, certainly her serious, her published poetry comes in the last decade of her life. She died at 51. Uh, many things about her life interested me, including her weight problem. She was obese. I've had a lifelong weight problem. It was something that I felt I understood as part of her self-image and also her motivation, frankly. That's kind of the backstory of that biography. So part of what happens, at least for me as a biographer, is I have to make some connection with my subject, obviously. There's also a kind of opportunism. When someone says, oh, another biography is needed, it might not be the right subject for me. But if it is, then that opportunism and my interest in the subject coincide. That biography of Amy Lowell was not published until 2013, which I'll get to in a moment, because publication dates can be very misleading. I was in a period when I was doing a trade book biography uh, that came out in 2005, although I had actually completed in 2003 a biography of the filmmaker Jill Craigie. 
And uh, after that, I became a book review columnist for the New York Sun for about three years. Took me into 2007, 2008. Did some revisions of my biographies of Rebecca West and Norman Mailer and Lillian Hellman. But between 2005 and 2012, when my Dana Andrews biography was published, most of my time was spent thinking about and writing about biography, but not writing biographies. So I wrote reading biography, collection of my uh, reviews from the New York Sun, uh, adventures in the art and politics of biography, um, and um, biography, a user's guide. Then I was searching around, thinking about, I think I had kind of um, refreshed myself in doing that, thinking about biography, and uh, started to turn toward uh, Amy Lowell, uh, and got an NEH fellowship to do the biography of Amy Lowell. Actually wrote a series of essays uh, called Amy Lowell Among Her Contemporaries, which I self-published. Um, before uh, turning to the biography as a whole. In Amy Lowell, among her contemporaries, I was dealing with D.H. Lawrence and Robert Frost, uh, Carl Sandburg, many of her contemporaries, um, and sort of positioning her in terms of her life and their lives and her relationships with them. And I thought I was about ready then to write her whole biography. And then I got a call from the director of the University Press of Mississippi. I'm going to take a sip of my tea now, and I, I hope you'll do the same. She was calling the director of the press because she had gotten a call from one of Dana Andrews's daughters who wondered if there were if the director of the press knew someone who might want to write a biography of Dana Andrews. Turned out there had been someone writing his biography, but that person had sort of disappeared, gone off the radar, and the family was very disappointed because they had invested a lot of time in his work, and he had interviewed them, and he had started while Dana Andrews was still alive, and then he just sort of vanished. I mean, I know where he is. He's retired. But he vanished in the sense of evidently just stopping work on the biography. So the director of the press asked me, do you know of anyone who might want to do a biography of Dana Andrews? And I said, immediately, I said, yes, I do. And she said, who? I said, me. Uh, it was just a gut reaction, spontaneous, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, my one. I'll say my favorite film is Laura, the film that made Dana Andrews a star. It uh, resonated in so many ways because the detective he plays is a kind of biographer. The way he gazes at Laura's portrait and reads her letters made it almost a parable of biography as the biographer's identification with the subject and also, in a sense, his snooping, his detective work. But my... The, the character that Dana Andrews plays is a plainclothes detective. And so is my father. And the affect, the way that detective carries himself, 
reminded me so much of my father. Uh, so I think, again, it was like a life choice. Of course, I had to do Dane Andrews. I was very fortunate because once I got to know his family and the daughter who called, uh, it 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 turned out that there, there weren't going to be any strings attached. No one was going to be looking over my shoulder. And I was going to be getting access to all kinds of family documents. But remember, I was supposed to be writing a biography of Amy Lowell. Now what? Well, I put Amy Lowell on hold and uh, spent my time writing uh, over two, three years a biography of Dana Andrews. But wait, I didn't just spend my time doing that. Now we're getting into around 2000. 10, and we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Sylvia Plath's death. And Sylvia Plath had been a long-term interest of mine. I had taught her poetry many times, uh, it, beginning in 1972-73, when I was teaching in a private school in Devon, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, read her poetry in an anthology called Sound and Sense. I was teaching to 10th graders. And then once I got to New York and became a biographer, um, I got to know Paul Alexander, one of her biographers who came to a seminar of mine and talked about Plath biography. And at that point, around 2010, 2011, I was without an agent. Um, I had had an agent, but for a whole variety of reasons, I had gotten rid of that agent and went to the Biographers International Conference uh, annual meeting, and they had this um, session, um, speed dating with agents. And uh, I didn't have a proposal yet, but I thought, well, it's now or never. And I hadn't done a trade book biography since, one hadn't been published since 2005. So I went to the annual meeting and I pitched the biography to four agents. As it turned out, two of the agents were male and two were female. One male agent said, well, have you had a breakout book? <laughs> I thought, yeah, a breakout book? What do you mean by that? Some kind of bestseller or something? No, I don't have anything like that. Most biographers don't, with some significant exceptions. So he, he was just market-driven completely uh, and couldn't see the possibilities at all of another Sylvia Plath biography. Uh, the second agent listened to me, and all he really had to say was, well, I think a woman should write that book. Well, what can I say? I'm not a woman. Then uh, the third agent was a woman, and she said, oh, yeah, I can send me the proposal. I think so. And then I pitched it to the fourth agent, and after listening to me, and I think my pitch was getting better, she said, um, oh, I'd want to read that book. Well, that was the agent for me. And uh, so I wrote the proposal. And uh, what really um, intrigued me about Plath, and this is obvious, so many people, you know, it's like Marilyn Monroe, why did she commit suicide? Um, that wasn't my only interest in Sylvia Plath. As I say, I been, had been teaching her poetry for years. But I thought there was still something more to say 
especially after my work on Marilyn Monroe's suicide and, and what a contingent um, event a suicide is. Too, too many people read back from the suicide to the rest of a person's life and take a kind of deterministic approach. Um, this is what Platt's own husband did in the way he edited her book of poetry, editing in such a way that it in, reinforced the idea that somehow Sylvia Plath was doomed. Well, I wanted to open up that whole issue of doom again. So I had this proposal. I hadn't written any of the book itself. And my agent said to me, well, you have to do a sample chapter. Now, I had sold books in the 1980s without sample chapters, with, I think, very good proposals, but without sample chapters. But she said, doesn't seem to matter who you are or how much you've done, you've got to do a sample chapter. So I said, well, what should I do? She said, oh, just, you know, begin at the beginning. And I thought about it, I thought about it, I thought about it, and I thought, no. If I'm going to get a book with a trade book publisher, what are they interested in? They're also going to be interested in the death of Sylvia Plath. So I wrote the last chapter of the biography first. And that's what sold the book. And that's what the Boston Globe eventually excerpted uh, for their um, newspaper um, serial of the book. I can't tell you, um, I've never done that since, never done it before, writing the last chapter of a biography first. But that was such a motivator. It gave me a kind of trajectory not that I would go back and show all the things which led to her death. That's not quite what I mean. Because what I was showing, I thought, in the death of Sylvia Plath in that last chapter was the contingent factors. How the suicide were the product of certain circumstances and situations. Not that Sylvia Plath, oh, she was doomed to take her life. Not at all. So in a sense, I wanted to show earlier aspects of her life. Um, certainly... Some of them were related to what eventually happened to her, but some of them showed a very different kind of person. So that uh, biography was published uh, in 2013. By then, I had also finished uh, the Dana Andrews biography. I was working on that as I was working on Plath. Um, as the, the Sylvia Plath, uh, the first Plath book I did, American Isis, the life and death of Sylvia Plath, treating her very much as a mythological figure. I, um, let me take another sip of tea before I continue. I say about a year, you know, it takes a while to produce a book. So, although the book was published on the 50th anniversary of Sylvia Plath's death, in 2013. The book was pretty much finished close to a year before that. It takes nine months to a year for most publishers, trade book or otherwise, to publish a book. Some are faster, some are slower. And during that period, while I was dealing with, you know, indexes and um, proofs and so on of the Sylvia Plath biography, I finished, uh, I had finished the Dana Andrews book and I had done a lot of work on Amy Lowell. So I went back to the Lowell biography. And that's a sh one of my shorter biographies because, as I told you earlier, I was really focusing on certain aspects of her life 
and on her best work. Um, so it was a very tightly composed kind of biography. I had been sort of inspired to do that by uh, Jeffrey Myers doing a short biography of Edgar Allan Poe, taking the same um, perspective point of view, dealing with what he felt were uh, Poe's greatest works. So I went back and I finished the Amy Lowell. What happened was, uh, in February of 2013, my Plath biography was published on the 50th uh, anniversary of Plath's death. And uh, about six months later, Roman and Littlefield published my biography of Amy Lowell. I had a long-standing contract actually with Ivan R. D., a Chicago publisher, and Roman and Littlefield bought him out. To my amazement and surprise, uh, the uh, Roman and Littlefield didn't take the traditional nine to 12 months to publish a book. They did it in under six months. As a result, my Amy Lowell biography came out in the fall of 2013, and people looked at the Plath, which had, you know, appeared six months earlier in the Amy Lowell, and they thought, oh, this guy works awfully quickly, too quickly, there must be something wrong here. Well, not really. I had been working on thinking about and working on Amy Lowell since, with many interruptions, to be sure, but since the year 2000. So um, publication dates can be... Um, misleading, to say the least, in my case, anyway. So I published the Plath biography in 2013, and I didn't think that I would write anything, maybe a paper or an article, but I didn't think I would write more on Plath. And in the meantime, I had all this accumulated material uh, from working on Joe Craigie, who was married to the British politician Michael Foote, I had so much material with foot, recorded interviews, that I decided to do what I call the private life of Michael Foot, uh, very much what I would call a Boswellian biography. It gave me um, a real opportunity to deal with myself, my character, and the way I handled uh, Michael Foot. All that gets into a private life of Michael Foot in the way that Boswell talks about his relationship with Johnson. So that book appeared in 2015. Um, and uh, uh, I was working on a biography of Walter Brennan, uh, a revision of the Susan Sontag biography, my wife and I, I did as well. So there were these intervening books. And then I got uh, a call from an agent who uh, was trying to sell a series of short biographies. It's not James Atlas who actually did do this for Amazon, but someone else who had a similar idea. And he asked me if there were anybody I could do. Now at this point, um, we're talking about 2018, 2019. I thought I wouldn't write another biography. I felt pretty much the way I felt back in, in um, 2003. Uh, when I had finished the Craigie, I thought, well, you know, I got interested in my column in the New York Sun, and I thought, well, who knows if I'll ever write another biography, and it sure is fun, and in some ways easier to pontificate about biography than do biography. So I was in, kind of in that position, again, in two, 2017, 2018, when this agent came along, and he said, well, 
why don't you write just a real short, you know, 20,000 word or so biography of Plath, and we'll sell that to Amazon. Well, they didn't buy his series, and so um, I didn't do that book, but the idea stuck. And there was another publisher, I actually signed a contract with him to do a short biography of Sylvia Plath, while I had this, and I considered this a retirement project, I could do Sylvia Plath day by day. So also doing William Faulkner day by day because I had all this archival material and things I couldn't put in even in two volumes of a Faulkner biography. So the William Faulkner day by day has been published. And then I was going on to the Sylvia Plath day by day. Well, it turned out as I started to work on Sylvia Plath day by day, uh, and going over the archive, and you always leave things out, no matter how long your narrative is. Uh, there was material that led to the last day of Sylvia Plath, which was published in 2020, a fairly short biography. Um, because I got interested in her therapist, Ruth Boischer, and Ruth Boischer's papers, um, just like Sylvia Plath's papers at the British Library, really, it's in the Owen Hughes collection. One of the reasons that motivated me for doing my first Plath biography is new material. Well, there was new material here as well. Uh, Ruth Boischer's archive at Smith College was opened up. Some parts were closed because of confidential, confidentiality issues with her patients. But she gave a number of public talks in which she talked about Plath quite openly. And some of that material went into The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, which was published in 2020, as I was working on Sylvia Plath day by day. Well, one thing leads to another. I got so interested in Ruth Boischer, or Ruth Tiffany Barnhouse, to use her maiden, her family name, uh, in her papers, uh, I couldn't let go, especially when I began to see that Ruth Barnhouse recommended certain books to uh, Sylvia Plath that she read, the literature and psychology. And it turned out that Smith had some of these books. And they didn't just have these books. These books are underlined and annotated by Sylvia Plath. I got really excited. Hold on. Another sip of tea. Well, we're in the age of the pandemic. And I couldn't go to Smith. Smith wasn't open. The college uh, archive wasn't open. But they were, they were willing to digitize these books for me. And so as I was working on what turned out to be two volumes of Sylvia Plath day by day, the first volume is coming out in August, I started writing the making of Sylvia Plath because I realized there was so much material that wasn't in the other biographies, not, not even in Heather Clark's mammoth biography. No matter how big or, you know, my, in my case, two volumes of Faulkner, there's still stuff that's left out. Uh, originally, I thought of titling this podcast Short Release Biography and Long Release Biography. Well, the Sylvia Plath 
work that I've done is both short and long release biography. I wrote the first biography of Sylvia Plath, American Isis, The Life and Art and Sylvia Plath in less than two years. I consider that a short release. On the other hand, I've got that biography. I've got Sylvia Plath, Volumes 1 and 2, Day by Day, Volumes 1 and 2, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, and now The Making of Sylvia Plath, which I don't have a publication date for, but will probably come out in uh, 2024. Uh, and that's very much an intellectual biography. It deals with her personal life and affairs. Um, but it's very much about her, the way her mind was shaped by what she read. Now, all the biographies deal with this to some extent, but not at the granular level that both Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, Volumes 1 and 2, and The Making of Sylvia Plath uh, do. So in effect, uh, I like to think of what I've written as a five-volume biography of Sylvia Plath. American Isis, The Life and Art of Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, Volumes 1 and 2. The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. And The Making of Sylvia Plath. Choosing your subjects. Um, the subjects choose you. I certainly didn't set out to write so much about Sylvia Plath or about William Faulkner. My dissertation was on Faulkner. That's available. Uses of the past of the no in the novels of William Faulkner. Then the two-volume Life of William Faulkner that University of Virginia Press published. And another book that's coming out called William Faulkner On and Off the Page, Essays and Biographical Criticism. And that book is an extension of both William Faulkner Day by Day, which just, occur, just appeared this October, and the biography. Uh, and it, 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 in a series of essays, I, I again deal with what's left out in those books, and also with the sense of him as a creative person on the page, in his novels and stories, but also in story conferences in Hollywood and his collaboration with other writers. I have a whole chapter, for example, on his film adaptation of Revolt in the Earth, which has never been produced and is very different uh, from uh, the novel Absalom, Absalom. Uh, because it, it's different because Faulkner understood the medium of film, which is different from the medium of the novel, obviously, but also because he had more things to say about those characters, particularly the African-American characters, who have a role to play in the screenplay that they don't have in the novel. So, you know, I began reading William Faulkner as an undergraduate, in 1966, producing a dissertation, uh, completing a dissertation and getting a PhD in 1975, revising that dissertation and publishing it in 1984, publishing some articles about Faulkner, uh, and then writing a series of articles as my two-volume biography was coming out, which were essentially to promote the biography. Uh, and some of those articles 
will be in William Faulkner on and off the page. So, I don't know what to say about all this, uh, except that, uh, to me anyway, it's, um, it's been organic. It's, uh, it's a, a, to me, a story of growth, of uh, both quick release and slow release, um, books that took a long time to gestate, uh, with interruptions and books which, um, as in Faulkner's case, came very quickly. He had some books that came very quickly. Some, as with Absalom Absalom, he interrupted to write a whole other novel, Pylon. That's sort of what I did uh, when I started with Amy Lowell, switched to Dane Andrews, switched again to Sylvia Plath, then went back to Amy Lowell. Um, I think for some people, uh, and maybe this is the way you work, it has to be one book at a time. Uh, but for s some of us, uh, novelists or biographers, one book can help another book. Uh, going from one subject to the other subject, uh, as Faulkner does in The Wild Palms, two interweaved, very different and yet connected stories uh, can make the whole of the book, or in this case, I hope the whole of a career um, work for me. Thanks for listening.